Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. If you've been enjoying our show and haven't yet hit the subscribe button, please take a moment to do so. And while you're at it, I would love, love, love if you could take a moment to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I love and appreciate your reviews, but your reviews also help new listeners find us. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. On that note, I want to shout out Ink and Tea Leaves, who wrote us a review that said, I love this podcast. Yin Chang interviews absolutely incredible writers with such warmth and humanity, including some of my childhood heroes like Tamara Pierce. When I'm creatively blocked or stressed or looking for inspiration, this podcast is my absolute go-to. I've learned so much over the last few years as a listener. Highly, highly, highly recommended. Hey, Ink and Tea Leaves, thank you so much for your uplifting review. I really appreciate you taking the time to write this, and I'm so grateful to have listeners like you in our community. For today's episode, we have Kat Cho, the international best-selling author of Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits on the show today. Kat is also the co-host alongside Clarabelle Ortega of the Write or Die podcast, a show that interviews authors about the struggles of getting published and maintaining an author career. Today's episode is a meaningful one as Kat has been a longtime 88 Cups of Tea podcast listener all the way back five years ago from being a vocal advocate of our show, constantly giving us loving shout outs on social media to winning our first ever giveaway celebrating 88 Cups of Tea's first anniversary in 2016 to being featured as one of the eight listeners highlighted in our 88th episode in 2017 to attending 88 Cups of Tea's three-year anniversary party in New York City and producing an incredibly thoughtful and heartfelt vlog recapping the event. Kat has been a part of 88 Cups of Tea's history throughout our milestone moments, and I am so proud to see all that she has accomplished for herself, making her dreams come true. I could not be more thrilled to share Kat's episode with you. In our conversation, we dive right into a fully transparent and honest discussion about navigating through a pandemic as a human, as a creative, and as an author, and what it's been like reflecting on meaningful endeavors she's taken on. We segue our way into Kat's earlier childhood years and the significance that writing and storytelling had in her upbringing. She shares her life experiences moving through grief and mourning and how writing rekindled a sense of joy and healing and a feeling of hope to hang on to and how she discovered kindness and acceptance for herself as a part of her healing process through that grief. Later on, we discuss her work in the medical fields in cancer research and clinical research and how Kat solidified her long-term love for storytelling and made the gradual transition into novel writing. We unpack the complexities of the relationship she has with her Korean heritage, being raised as an Asian American in Central Florida, the duality of having a personal identity versus a public identity, creating new experiences, learning about her Korean heritage in more recent years, and embracing her identity. In the later part of the episode, we talk about humor and playfulness and why those are key factors in life and in our stories. And we discuss finances for authors and also go into detail answering a listener question about going virtual as an author due to COVID-19 and how the new online presence has influenced future logistics of book publication and promotion. 
Before we jump right in, be sure to listen to the 88th episode that Kat was featured in to hear her journey at a time when she was developing her Gumiho story before she became a published author. It's inspiring to hear how Kat has evolved throughout the years with her storytelling and the experiences she's gained. You can listen over at 88cupsoftea.com slash 88, and those are the numbers 88. Now let's jump right in. Miss Kat Cho, I'm so happy to have you on the <laughs> podcast on 88 Cups of Tea. It's such an honor and Aww. honestly, and I'm so proud of everything that you have created for yourself through all of your hard work, through all of your perseverance, not giving up and constantly working your butt off and always showing up for the community at the same time, the writing community. And that I can vouch for because I've seen you in our private Facebook group in the past, always constantly jumping in, helping each other. Kat, so how are you doing right now during this pandemic? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, heavy sigh. Well, first of all, let me say thank you so much for your kind words. It's definitely very surreal to be on the podcast as a published author. I know that I had the honor of being on the 88th episode, which was such a dream come true, I can't even say. Like when I got your email being like, I'd love for you to be one of the listener guests, I was in tears. I like messaged all my friends who I knew listened to the podcast. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so amazing. And I was so excited. And I never even dreamed that like I would get to have this chance to come back on and and talk about it. So thank you so much for this opportunity. And you are giving me goosebumps everywhere. <laughs> Listen, we need to talk about you. Okay. So please, thank you. That's where I received that with a lot of love. So thank you so much. And you've been such a big part of 88 Cups of Tea, always showing up for us, spreading the love and just talking about our community. So really, thank you so much, Kat, for all that you've done and also contributed to making 88 Cups of Tea what it is today. So thank you so much. I love I love this love fest. It makes me so happy. Um, I know me too. So sorry. Now let's get to you. So how are you doing during this this pandemic? Um, you know, honestly, so every time I answer this question, I always feel like I, I have to give caveats because I do think that I'm definitely in a place of privilege in a lot of ways because before everything even happened for maybe like a year and a half, two years before, I was already working from home. I had my system in place. I had my routine. I was pretty comfortable with it. I am very comfortable with where I am in my apartment and I have a great support system. So all of that combined, I really did feel like, okay, I can do it. I can power through. I will say that it is still different because <laughs> just the, all the external factors and all the external stresses, it definitely ends up weighing on people. So you know how we're so much better at supporting our friends and giving advice to our friends than we are at taking it. <laughs> yes. yes. So there was a point kind of like a few months ago where I kind of had to almost sit myself down and be like, self, you're allowed to be sad and you're allowed to like stress out and you're allowed to vent and not be okay. I had to have kind of that come to Jesus talk with myself definitely a day at a time. And I do think like as creatives, we kind of have this feeling of guilt because this is our dream job. We're doing the thing. 
I think that we end up being so grateful for what we do have that we don't want to complain about what we don't have. And then we end up internalizing it and it builds up and builds up like a pressure cooker. And then it kind of explodes in the most unfortunate circumstances and ways. So I think my personal goal is to allow myself to like release the pressure in small, healthy ways. As creatives, we can work from home. Most of our writing is done in seemingly isolation, although I do think that's a fallacy that's unhealthy. I was in deep denial, and I know a lot of my friends were in it too, because I was like, I can do this. I'm fine. Let's keep going. And slowly I realized that the pressures of what's going on right now made me think, and what I am writing right now, is it important enough for me to be spending my energy on? Like, could I be spending my energy on something, quote unquote, more meaningful, more impactful, more important? Am I wasting my time? Am I wasting my reader's time? Am I wasting my editor and my agent's time? And it was so unhealthy, to be honest, because we can't be everything to everyone. And I think that's something that's really important that has been a discussion slowly coming up in diverse creators' communities, like Black, Indigenous, POC communities, um, LGBTQ communities. A lot of people have realized that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to take on the responsibility for our, our entire community. And it's too much for any one person. That's true now more than ever. We can try to bring hope with our stories. And I, I would argue anything that's a distraction from this brings hope. We need to give ourselves some space to breathe. And I had to realize that, that, yeah, my stories are paranormal romance, contemporary fantasy. Like it's about fox spirits falling in love with humans. And that might not be like the most uplifting, inspiring thing right now, but it does give entertainment to people and it does allow people to escape reality for like an hour at a time. And that's a positive thing to bring to the world too. So I was kind of grappling with that when I was making my art because a lot of my stories are just escapism fantasy and I felt like I wasn't doing enough. But I had to let go of that. I love my stories, I do. And I love incorporating my heritage in it, my culture in it. And I think that that's a meaningful endeavor and I had to remind myself of that, but it was hard. The words I'm saying now can't come after like six months of me kind of doing self-therapy. <laughs> so I don't expect anyone to automatically be in this place. It took me a long time to get here, but I stumbled a lot in the beginning. I fell into kind of a deep depression for a while. Kat, first of all, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And when you mentioned, you know, you didn't find your own work inspiring and that you had to learn to let it go because you're like, you know, the work I do provides escapism. Your work does provide inspiration. That's why we need to hear from more voices from people who look like us, from the Black community, Indigenous community, so that we don't have to put so much weight in one type of story. It really should be about showing all the different complexities of who we are, our cultural background, our upbringing, our parents' stories that they grew up telling us. So just remember that is very inspiring in itself. Oh, thank, thank you so much. It does mean more hearing it from someone else. Like we can say it to ourselves as much as we want, but sometimes we, <laughs> sometimes we say it and we kind of don't really mean it. So to hear somebody else say it is really meaningful. So thank you so much for that. 
we're guilty of being our own worst critics. And this may not apply to all, but I do know growing up with an immigrant upbringing, as in I was born here in New York, Mm -hmm. my family being immigrants coming here, it's almost taught to not talk about our successes, to put our heads down. And whatever we do is almost like never enough. You know, I get a 98. They're like, well, where's 105? Where's the extra credit? (laughs) I'm sure I'm not the only one. It must be ingrained somewhere from so far back growing up and thinking, oh, it's never enough. On top of living and growing up in a country where our stories are never, ever prioritized, all of that compounded, it doesn't do us any good. It's so important to be able to support within our communities and share with each other that our work does matter. I'm really just so proud of you and all the work that you've done and all that you've done to get to where you are today. It's it's something that gives a lot of hope to our storyteller community because they the so many listeners who've been with us from day one know of you, know that you have been there for them to help them with your own writing advice, jumping in to cheer each other on. So I do want to now wrap around to ask you how you first fell in love with storytelling. (laughs) I know I (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you again. I feel like I have to thank you every time after you say something because I really appreciate like I... One of the reasons I love listening to 88 Cups of Tea is because it's a true conversation between you and the guests. And, and I love your insights. And I think you have so much to give to the community. And I always appreciate all of the time that you give to us, all that you've created for us. So Cat, like, you're too kind. No, 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 no. This is about Cat Show. Okay, no. Thank you, Cat. Thank you. Now you tell us about your storytelling journey. Okay. I'll try to make it a little bit different than the the story overview that I gave for the 88th episode because I do know that I already kind of talked about it. I definitely have always loved reading and writing since I was a little girl. And I think that there is a difference, as we know, of children of immigrants between loving something as a kid and actually feeling like you can do that job. My parents definitely encouraged me to read and even to write like things for school or just for fun for myself. They were never discouraging about that as a hobby. Anytime I ever mentioned to them, like, I want to write books as a living, like, how fun would that be? They were like, "Mm -hmm, we'll talk about it. (laughs) Like, tried not to address it too deeply because they didn't want to be discouraging. My parents were so great and they were so supportive of things that my sister and I loved. But at the same time, they were a little bit of that classic Asian parents where they were like, we just want you to be stable and we want you to be able to make a living and be comfortable. We don't want you to struggle or suffer, which I do know it's where most of our parents come from. Like they're not trying to make us miserable. (laughs) They just want us to have comfort. So for me, like reading and writing was a hobby and it was so much fun. I would share it with my friends. I loved Sailor Moon when I was (laughs) younger. My friends and I, we were each a Sailor Scout. I was Sailor Jupiter. It was like cosplaying before we knew what that was and fan fiction before we knew what that was. 
we would like write little adventures that we have. We'd be like, Sarah Mercury, when you get this, you have to meet me by like the tree of life, which is like the tree in the courtyard or whatever, because we have to go and like, <laughs> we have to go and like fight these evil, like energy sucking monsters and all of that stuff. So we would like write down our adventures as kind of a pass around story. And it was really fun. And we had no expectations for it to be cohesive. It was just for us. It was pure joy. And that's how I saw writing when I was younger, which is great because I think that if I had pressured myself the way that I pressured myself academically when I was a kid, then I I don't know if I would be where I am right now. So I kind of do like that I was just allowed to embrace that is like just a purely fun activity. When it came to like what I thought was expected of me professionally, it was really, really stressful and not the healthiest, you know, way to be. And I let myself push myself too hard in some cases. And I pushed myself into a profession in medicine and healthcare that I did after college, uh, which was great and fulfilling. I worked in cancer research. I had the most amazing experiences with my patients, with the doctors I worked with, with my clinical research coworkers. I do really think it was a worthwhile endeavor for the time that I was there, but I got burned out pretty quickly. The one thing that kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back was that my mom ended up getting cancer while I was working at the hospital and she ended up getting treated there. And unfortunately she lost her battle with it. And it was just a lot, you know, like it was, it's like, I knew that what I was doing was worthwhile and I knew what I was doing was worth it to help people. But I also think that it became too personal for me. And when it becomes too personal for you as the caregiver, you end up feeling like you're putting a burden on your patients. It's not their responsibility to comfort you. It's not their responsibility to give you space. You're supposed to be able to give them space. And I know that that sounds really cold. And and I actually do know a lot of doctors and nurses who would have to step out of the room, who'd have to like take a beat. So like, if you need five minutes, that's totally fine. But for me, it ended up, I needed five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 and then 30 and then an hour, you know, my ability to do that job was really negatively affected by how personal I was taking everything. And so I had to find something at first, like, I wasn't like, I'm just going to quit this job. I was like, I need to find something to take my mind off of this. And it ended up being writing. I would write in my journals I would write down short little anecdotes. And then finally, I had a dream (laughs) where my family was like descended from these ancient warriors. (laughs) I think part of it was me processing certain things that I couldn't process because in the dream, we were descended from these ancient Korean warriors who like, you know, had secretly been protecting Korea since the beginning of history. And because of it, we were stronger and healthier, aka like we didn't get sick. Um, Afterwards, I remember the dream vividly. I actually remember lots of my dreams vividly. I have a whole dream journal going back to like uh, high school. And my cousin was writing and actively pursuing publication at the time. I called her and I was like, oh my God, I had the craziest dream. Do you want to hear it? Like that thing that people do all the time and people are like, oh, fine, tell me your dream. (laughs) And I told it to her and I was like, I really think it's like legitimately a young adult novel. 
would you want the story? Like, I'll give it to you. I'll write it down. I'll write it down as like a whole story outline. You can write it. And she was like, it sounds really cool, but it's your story. It's your story to tell. So you write it. And at this point, I had been scribbling, you know, short things, but never a full length novel. And I was like, no, no, I don't have the time for that. My job is in medicine. Why would I be doing that? And she's like, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. But it sounds like you really want to see how the story plays out. So why don't you just start it and try it? I always credit her with not giving up on supporting me and pushing me because I did end up doing it. And I, I pantsed that story, as we say in the industry. <laughs> I wrote 100,000 words almost in 19 days. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't good. I bow down. <laughs> it was not good. But I mean, I do think it was kind of a perfect storm because it was a little bit therapeutic. Like I needed to get the story out. I needed to escape the sadness I was feeling in my everyday life, in my job. And also like the story definitely was demanding to be told in my head. And it was just, I think it was the first time in about a year since my mom had passed away where I was looking forward to something, you know, I looked forward to writing this story and I look forward to like reading over the things I had already read and, and I was feeling joy and for just, you know, five, 15, 20 minutes at a time, forgetting that I was sad. Um, and it was really important for me to like realize that there were things in this world that could make me feel joy again. You know, I know that sounds really sad and, and I don't mean to be a downer with it. I just think that when we're in mourning, when we're dealing with our grief, there's no expiration date to that. It doesn't really go away. And I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that. And I needed to come to terms with that reality, that new reality to my life. Um, and so learning that, you know, no, I was never going to be able to turn off this, this sadness, this grief in my life. But yes, I could find things that gave me joy and also not didn't have to feel bad about it either <laughs> uh, was a really important turning point in my grieving process. And writing gave me that. So that book it was dystopian, love triangle, chosen one, all of that stuff at a time where publishing didn't want that anymore. <laughs> so when my cousin asked me, she was like, do you want to try to query this and get an agent? I was savvy enough because I was an active reader to know that this wasn't really being published anymore. So I said, you know, I, I do think I want to explore this, this, career path, but I, ha I can't do it with this book. So I had, luckily I had another idea. I wrote another book again, this time kind of taking it a little bit more seriously. Um, and then that book took me like nine months to write <laughs> a more, a more like average time frame. <laughs> what do you mean average? I'm just here like, God, you just blow me away. I love how you're just so humble about it. You're like, that's average. I'm like, I have been stewing on a story for 10 years. So please, oh my God. Sorry, continue. I just want to say you are a fast writer, ma'am. I'm a cancer. <laughs> please teach a class, teach a workshop. I really would love to bring you in for a workshop for 88 Cups of Tea one of these days on teaching people how to fast draft and just oh, get sure. those words down and what an honor it would be to hear from the word empress herself. Like, <laughs> sorry, love, continue. No, sorry. Yeah, I, and also I do not mean to make anyone feel bad if it's taking them longer than that. I, I just mean like 19 days is ridiculous and and unhealthily irrational. Do not, do not aim for 19 days. <laughs> and the thing I think that was great was that 
I'm a little bit of a realist. And a part of me was like, maybe that first book that I wrote in 19 days was exciting because it was so quick, you know, that kind of like blush of first love where you're like all heady and it's so fast. And it's one of those relationships you have when you're like 16 years old and you see each other every day and you're obsessed with each other for like a month. And then you realize how unrealistic that is. But then your next relationship, you're like, if I'm not feeling that intense, immediate lust for you, it's not the same. But like, it was nice because for the second book, I still loved it after nine months. It was a moment where I was like, okay, maybe I could do this. Because I do still feel this really stable admiration and love for this field. It felt more realistic to me after writing that second book. I think for me personally, I know not everyone's path is the same, but I needed those two different experiences in order to convince myself that I could do this as a job, potentially. I needed to have the like first love like everything's like a blur. And I also need to have the like, let's take my time. I have like a, a steady love for you. (laughs) You know, that actually that nine month long manuscript ended up not getting an agent. I would never give up that experience because it really solidified the fact that yes, I want to do this. I really do. And I still had my full-time job then. I actually was still working in clinical research. I had moved away from cancer research because I was coming to a point where I realized cancer research was a little bit too triggering for me. So I had to step away from that for a couple of years. But I was still working in medicine when I finally got my agent, when I finally got my book deal. I, I do think that a lot of times before we've gone through something like this, it's literally a trauma to lose someone who's so important to you, no matter when you lose them. No one ever thinks that they're going to be strong enough to get through it because it's an unthinkable thing. No one lives their life anticipating losing somebody who they love. I definitely would never have thought that I would be able to get through losing my mom because she was the glue that held our family together. I mean, it sounds almost cliche, but she literally was that anchor for our family. And she was an amazing person. She was you know, one of my best friends, like my sister's best friend too. Like she was that kind of a mom, you know? And also she was kind of our tie to our Korean heritage, to be completely honest. I think as diaspora kids, we are always grappling with where we land between these two different worlds. I definitely lost a lot when I lost her. I'm still sad to this day, you know? I think that the thing is, is that no one should feel bad when you fall apart because unfortunately you probably will at some point or another. And also it might not happen right away. Everyone in my family reacted to it differently. Some of us were like really strong in the very beginning because we had to be like, you know, when someone dies, there are things that you don't want to have to think about, but you have to do it. You have to get things put in place. You know, you have to organize certain things. You have to keep on moving through your day-to-day life. Um, And it's unfair. It's literally unfair. And so you might keep it together for a week or for a month or for even longer than that and then randomly fall apart. And it's okay if that happens. I feel like sometimes we feel guilty for how 
we react to the sadness. Um, and again, everyone's different and how they react. For me, I felt really guilty that I hated hearing people talk about their moms. I hated it. And I was like, well, I can't tell them to stop talking about their mom. It's not their fault that their mom is still around and mine is not. So what was I going to do? Like, I felt like I was in an impossible situation. It was never going to change. And the best thing I ever did for myself was to forgive myself for feeling so sad for that and to be like, it's okay that I'm upset about this, to stop feeling guilty about this emotion that I had, these jerk reactions. Like, I... I, I didn't, you know, you can mute words, keywords on like social media. And I was like, I muted mother, the word mother and mom. Cause I was like, I don't want to hear people talk about like mother's day or stuff like that. And I felt like a bad person almost. So I think that people need to realize that your grief might manifest in different ways and it's not something to feel guilty about. And also I do think like sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time we're going to be sadder than other people are comfortable with. And that's also okay. It was hard for me to express that. And um, my writing helped me actually. I mean, my writing started as a therapeutic thing. And to this day, it's still really therapeutic. And I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but I ended up writing a character who loses someone super important to them. And I realized I was like, oh, crap. Am I allowed to curse? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, please, okay, sorry. girlfriend. I am like a sailor over here. Join the crew. <laughs> okay. I was I was like, oh crap, because I I had to I had to write a follow-up book to it. And I was like, it would be disingenuous of me to not allow that character to go through the grieving process over the course of this book. And so I was like, am I ready? for this because it's going to be really personal. And also, am I ready to write in the things that I'm, I feel guilty about still to this day, like me lashing out, you know, and me being withholding to people. Like when people are like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. Why do you keep asking me that kind of reaction? And then feeling guilty afterwards. I was like, that's the most genuine reaction that I understand because it was mine. And so shouldn't I include that in this character's journey? Because it's what feels the most genuine to me. And am I ready for that? Am I ready to have, see that written on the page? I had the character have a conversation with somebody else who had also lost somebody close to them, but like long ago. And the character was like, when will this go away? And the other character's like, it never will. It will never go away. And you need to stop feeling bad for being sad you need to stop feeling guilty for being sad. And writing those sentences was almost like a pressure coming off of my chest to be like, okay, that's me talking to myself. That's my inner voices having a discussion is what these characters are doing for me. And, and it helped me realize that like, I need to forgive myself for those moments where it comes up in conversation sometimes. No one expects someone my age to not have their parents. So when they're like, oh, aren't your parents so proud of you? And I have to say, I like to think that they would be. And then you watch them have the realization. You watch them realize that my parents are no longer here. And I feel bad because I don't want them to feel bad. Like I feel bad that now they feel bad. And I'm like, let's get rid of that feeling. 
let's just have this conversation because it's a fact of my life and it's not a fact that I can hide. So let's move on from this and let's not feel guilty. And I don't want to feel guilty anymore for having to have this conversation. It hit me really hard when you're talking about how your mother not only is the glue of your family, but also your connection to your culture, her culture that she grew up with. Being diaspora kids in America, how then do you feel that you are staying or continuing to try and stay connected to the Korean roots? I have a very complicated relationship with my Korean heritage. Part of it is I definitely think I I have a reaction to my Korean heritage that I've heard from my fellow Asian diaspora friends that they've had too, which is that I was raised in a way where it's like, try to be as American as you can be so that like you can get as much success as you can by fitting into the American dream. Um, but also like there were certain moments where they were like, well, we don't do that because we're Korean. No explanation. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Like, Like we don't have family arguments in public. That's not how Korean families are. Or, um, like when I got, when we got older, my sister got engaged. My, I remember my parents said to her, they were like, we get married for forever. Korean people, we, we get married for forever. (laughs) I was like, okay, (laughs) like no explanation. It's just how it is. And so, um, like, so that, that definitely was like, I felt like, are we in this instance, are we American or are we Korean? Just let me know. And then I'll do the, the proper thing. So it was definitely very much of a feeling of back and forth in that sense. And then I also mainly grew up in, in central Florida, which had very few Korean people and no true, like cohesive Korean community as far as I was concerned. Um, so my Koreanness was not a public thing. Like it was a personal, private family identity. And out in the world, I was, you know, American. Uh, and so I, when I got older and I, and I moved to the Northeast and I started to see like, oh, there's like communities of like Asian people and of Korean people. I was like, how do I fit in here? Um, and of course, like the term that often comes up is Twinkie or banana. And, you know, we say it tongue in cheek, we try to joke around with each other, but I also feel like it's not the most positive term. And I kind of wish we didn't use it anymore, to be honest, me personally. And maybe that's just like my personal triggers, but I didn't really fully embrace my Koreanness until I was a legal adult, pretty much. And that came with some really complicated feelings because then it came up in conversation like, why now? And are you really Korean now that you're embracing it as an adult because it's not tied to your childhood? It's not rooted in you from childhood? And it, are, you, are these experiences you have with your Koreanness less meaningful because you're having them as an adult? as opposed to having them when you were a kid. And that was something that I really, I'm still grappling with to this day because a lot of things that I've learned about my culture, I didn't learn until like the last five, 10 years. So sometimes when I'm explaining it to someone outside of the Korean community, like actually in Korea, we do it this way. I'm like, am I fake? Because I only learned this 
five years ago. And now I'm talking like I'm the expert. But I do think that if I was to give advice to a friend who is Korean American or Korean diaspora, I would say to them, I was like, no, that's just as valid of an experience. That's fine. Embrace that. That's who you are. It's part of who you are at this point. So if I would say that to a friend, then I need to remind myself that it's okay for me to do it too, which I know is really hard, but like I try to kind of remember that sometimes. But like, I mean, there's like a story that I think of sometimes and I'm like, this is kind of embarrassing, but let's just tell it because if it helps somebody else and I want to tell it is that when my mom was sick and we still had moments of being like, maybe she'll pull through in the beginning when my mom was sick, my sister and I decided we wanted to get a tattoo <laughs> and we wanted it to be her Korean name in Hangul in Korean alphabet. We were like, let's do this, right? So we hired like a calligrapher to like write out her name in the Hangul so that it could be unique. It wasn't from Microsoft Word or something. And we brought it to the tattoo artist and the tattoo artist. We found a Korean tattoo artist. Like we were like, let's go like all the way in authentic. And we got our tattoos and then we went and we showed it to her and she was like, Oh, and we're like, oh, is it because you hate tattoos? Because like, you know, our very Asian side of the family is like, oh, tattoos are not great. But we were like, oh, is it because it's tattoo? And she's like, no, it's because it's wrong. And we we're like, what? And she was like, it's spelt wrong. And we were like, no, it's not. We like asked our Korean grandmother, we're like, how do you spell cho? Like, is it the kit or kit, like all this stuff? And like, this is how we spell it. Like, this is like, we know how to spell Cho in, in Hangul because we were taught in like Korean school, like Saturday school, <laughs> um, how to spell our name. So this is how you spell your name. And she's like, yeah, but in the Korean culture, the woman doesn't change her last name. The reason like her name was Cho legally in America, because in America, the wife will change her name. But in Korea, they don't. She's like, so you should have used my maiden name. For a while, we were like, oh, crap. Like, we're those people who got, like, the Asian characters and we thought it spelled peace, but it really means, uh, like, you know, pork fried rice. I could see in her eyes she wasn't like, oh, you're, this is embarrassing. I could see in her eyes that she was like, I just never taught my daughters this cultural practice. And I'm sad. Then, you know, we kind of had a talk and, like, we kind of thought about it as a family and we're like, you know, it's a mistake. Like, if you're, like, being a purist, it is a mistake. But our family, we're a Korean-American family. And this is representative of our family. Like, because her name is legally Cho on all her paperwork. To have it be, like, Cho Kyung-shin on my tattoo, yeah, like, if I went to Korea and they were like, oh, she would never have done that here. But, like, she has done that in America. And it's who we are. It's our identity. So that's what it represents for us. And our identity is messy. And it's a mix. And it is what it is. I definitely felt like, you know, it's almost representative of me being like, I learn things every day about my own identity. <laughs> I can either be beating myself up about it, or I can embrace it and be like, it's who I am. It's me. It's my identity. Kat Cho's identity. It's not yours. I've had so many conversations with authors of color who are like, am I diverse enough to write this story? And I feel so sad. Like I want to, I want to cry because I'm like, you are. And the fact that you doubt it, it's so sad. And, and the reason why I know it's sad is because I did go through that. Like 
you know, Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits, like my Gumiho duology, it's set in Seoul. These are Korean Korean characters and not Korean American characters. And the amount of turmoil I went through being like, can I call this own voices, which is such a hashtag discourse, you know, in the in the writing community, like what's own voices and is it worthwhile to label it that anymore? And this and this and that. And, um, and I, I really did go through a lot of turmoil. Even when I was first writing it, someone who, who truly loves me and cares about me asked me like, well, could you just set it in America? Could it be like in K town in LA or something? And I was like, I don't, it doesn't feel natural for it to be set in America. It has to be set in Korea. And so I run into that with my own writing. I've talked to other people about that. We're like, am I Korean enough? Am I Asian enough? Am I, you know, this enough to be writing this story based on my heritage? And and it, it makes me really sad. And and I just feel like, yes, you you are enough. And it's your identity. You're allowed to be proud of it. I, I don't think it it uh, frees us from responsibility of doing research. I mean, if we want to have a conversation about how much research I did, I literally flew to Korea three times to do research while writing the first book. So that is still a responsibility we hold. But I, I, I wish that, you know, no, I wish that authors of color and, and diverse authors didn't have to have this self-doubt. And I wish that people were okay with embracing their culture and writing it into their stories no matter when they came to it. My writing is a gift to me in that it has opened up my curiosity for my culture. I know so much more about my culture and my heritage because of my writing. And that's a gift that I will always be grateful for and I'm always happy for. And and I hope that other diverse writers also get that gift as well because it's invaluable. During the time that you were grieving, you were able to find those moments to break away and away from that reality at that moment. It provided you escapism. It provided you time to yourself to find that joy again. I do really want to expand on this and unpack playfulness and about writing and how, if you have been consciously trying to find that I know we were talking about earlier on in our conversation when we first started about COVID as well. How has playfulness factored in during this current moment? Well, I think like I have a type of personality that I deal with very serious things. My defense mechanism is humor. It's my coping mechanism. It's my defense mechanism. So if anyone follows me on Twitter, like sometimes I will talk about really serious things in publishing and like, I'll end the th- Twitter thread with a joke. And it's like, oh, wow, what a turn in the tone. But it's like, even when we're talking about something really serious, it doesn't mean that we need to be taking ourselves too seriously. I think when we start to take ourselves too seriously is when we kind of lose sight of things. As a creative, I think that's a very, very true thing. We need to allow ourselves to look silly and to look goofy and to embrace the silly things about our lives and that's happening around us. And if in the midst of all the crying, you can just make someone do one of those like surprise laughs, tears are still streaming down their face, but they kind of laugh, then that's good. Like it's breaking up the feeling and like kind of allowing them a release. Like I was talking about the pressure cooker before and you need to like turn the valve just a little bit, release the pressure a little bit, because then if you do that, 
then maybe it allows their brain to clear a little bit and be like, okay, now I can actually kind of see what's actually making me upset now that I'm not in actual emotional turmoil because I release that pressure a little bit. And so it is useful. It is good. I think sometimes people think that when we laugh or when we do something silly during a serious time, then we're not taking it seriously. But we are. It's a tool. Laughter and humor and joy and silliness is a tool in our emotional tool bag in order to allow us to let go of the things that are weighing us down and to kind of have some kind of clarity. That's kind of how I see the silly moments in my writing. To be fair, I was of the mindset that my books were light. And someone was like, you think your books are light? Like they literally murder people. And I was like, is that not light? I think the reason why I was like, it's it's light, escapist fantasy is because I have such goofy moments in them where like people are like making fart jokes or just like slap fighting each other like children or whatever. And those are the moments that I remember because those are the moments that make me smile and stay with me. And I got some really great advice once from the great Renee Adia, which I know has been on 80 Cups of Tea before. And she said, people won't always remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. It's always stuck with me because I'm like, yeah, if someone made me laugh, then I will always remember that they made me laugh. I won't remember the joke always, but I will remember that they made me laugh. That's really important. We can never discount that. Honestly, I wish you could see my face. I am smiling at how much you are moving people just by sharing truthfully from a completely transparent, honest place. Kat, are you ready for a listener question right now? Oh, yes. Ooh, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people within our community were just so excited to hear your voice on 88 Cups of Tea, and they're all so supportive of you. We've got Benny Long, who said he is so excited for you. Megan LaCroix, who said, yay, can't wait to hear Kat on the show. Dana Nuninghov, she said, yay, love Kat, can't wait to listen. And so the question comes from Jay Mehta, and he said he's hoping that you can discuss your experience of going virtual as an author this year and how that has both impacted and influenced your mindset with regards to the future logistics of book publication and promotion. And he is so looking forward to this interview. Oh, well, thank you to everyone who was were so supportive. I, I love the 80 Cups of Tea community. It's what supported me what before I was even published. It's so meaningful. It's, it's that much more meaningful for this support. But yeah, going virtual, um, it, there was some growing pains. I don't think you'll, I don't think there are any authors out there who will <laughs> deny that there was some moments of us kind of just being frozen and like, well, what do we do next? Um, but I also think that It's been such a positive experience in so many ways, too. There's some sadness and not having to be able to see each other in person, to hug, to like, you know, have face to face conversations and take selfies with each other and, you know, go out for drinks after a panel. And for me personally, I mean, I'm still a baby author. I like, you know, I was barely a year out of, I was not even a year out of debut when this all started. And I was really looking forward to like, going out and seeing people and and stuff like that. But I do think that seeing how the community has like truly embraced virtual events and truly shown up for each other is so inspiring. 
And I think that one of the biggest things that we can learn from this as a community is to understand that this type of very accessible, very like open and, and like, um, virtual events is something that I don't think is only for now. I think this is something that we need to continue to embrace going forward. And the reason being is because the accessibility of a virtual event is huge. We have so much diversity within our community, both at both on the writing and publishing side and on the readership side. And there are certain people within the community who just do not have access to in-person events. Like they, whether it's a, like they don't have physical access to it, they don't have financial access to it. And I think it's really important for us to realize that it, now that we know how robust these tools are and how much they can bring in everyone from all aspects of our community, that we need to continue to embrace it going forward. Because it really can expand our reach. It really can expand the types of communities we can have discussions with. It can bring in voices that are severely underrepresented, like marginalized within the marginalized. And that's the only way we grow as a community. And I think that we have so many conversations where we're like, let's listen to the people who are speaking out about their marginalizations. But we can't just be shouting into the void about that. We need to put our actions where our mouths are. And that's what I've loved so much about virtual events. People outside of the U.S. market can attend. People who don't have the physical ability to travel. People who don't have the money for it can go and see these authors who like they maybe have wanted to see forever or discover new authors that are like debuting. And it's such a joyful thing to think of it that way. Instead of thinking about what we lost, we need to think about what we've gained because we really have gained so much through these experiences. And I've loved it and I want to keep doing it. What are you most excited about right now with your writing, with your storytelling? I, I loved my debut duology. I, I was so excited that I got to publish this book, that these books were my debut books. They fit me to a T, you know, as a writer from, you know, 2019, 2020. Um, but I am super excited about kind of exploring something a little bit new with my next book, which isn't announced <gasps> yet. <laughs> oh, wait, so no spoilers? So, Dang it. <laughs> I, can't give, I can't give spoilers. I actually asked my publisher, I was like, can I talk about this book? And they're like, mm, we still want to announce it and have it be exciting. But I will say it is a little bit new. It's, it's new in the fact that like some of the core parts of it are something I have never tried before, but it's still very Korean. Don't worry. <laughs> I always love the new opportunities that we're given, like working with new types of storytelling, working with new mediums, all of that stuff. I just want to really branch out and kind of see other ways to tell stories that I actually never even considered as a possibility when I first started getting into writing again. I was always like, traditional publication, fiction writing, prose, all of that stuff. Now that I see all of the possibilities, like it's like I stepped through a portal into Wonderland and I'm like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. So I, I'm trying to pace myself 
so I don't burn out. But oh my gosh, I'm so excited about these new opportunities. I can't wait to tell it everyone and share it with oh, everybody. Well, we are eagerly waiting for this news and announcement. You can trust that this community is here to accept this news excitedly. So I'm truly looking forward to it. Our lightning rounds that we usually have towards the end where I'll just spit out questions. Okay, so try to do this as quickly as possible. I know times have changed right now. And I think this is a bit tricky. Okay, so just a warning. Mm -hmm. But um, (laughs) money. Let's talk about money in regards to making an income so that writers don't have to stress about creating. Because when you're worrying about money, about what's coming in to put a roof over your head, to buy yourself groceries, how is anyone going to have any room to create and create freely and in a way that truly aligns with what you want to tell, those kind of stories? I know you are that person who knows about work ethic, about constantly juggling and making sure that you you have stability because I know the time when you came to hang out and we had dinner, you were mentioning as well about, you know, getting a new job. And I was just so inspired and admired you for how responsible you are. And I'm just like, oh gosh, <laughs> my mom would be thrilled to have you as uh, her daughter instead of me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I know I've told you this before, so yeah. say it out loud. So um, if you can just share from those experiences, from that mindset, from that perspective, especially during this time during COVID where it is so damn tricky now, how the mm-hmm. hell is one to survive? One of the saddest parts about like this industry is how opaque it is and how hard it is for people to get information. So I love talking about the career aspects of it and the behind the scenes and everything like that. I mean, I started a YouTube channel kind of lightly to talk about this. Yes. And please, by the way, before you go on, tell them what is your YouTube channel so they can find you because I know you started those series, which is incredible. So please share that resource. Um, yeah, it's literally just my name, Kat Cho, but it's, I think it's youtube.com slash C slash Kat Cho, all one word, and then you'll find me. I think recently we've had some great conversations publicly, like with like publishing paid me and all of that stuff. But it, the sad reality is that most authors are not paid a living wage. You can't really live off of it. And it's it's really hard. And, and also it's kind of hard to realize that because you, even if you get an advance at say six figures, if you get like a hundred thousand dollar advance for two books, then it's $50,000 a book. And you're thinking, Oh, great. It's a $50,000 a year salary. But then you have to think of it as 15% to your agent, 30 to 35% to taxes. Um, if this is your full-time job, then really you should be paying out of pocket for your health insurance. I mean, I know the United States is kind of really backwards in our healthcare system, but you should have health insurance. And then, and then also you're getting paid in thirds or fourths. So thinking about it that way, you're really getting a paycheck of like, I don't know, like $8,000 every six months. And, and that's not livable. And we need to be transparent about that and let people know that. And, and I know that people are out there saying, don't quit your day job. And I 100% agree. But recently, and this is based on personal experience, I think that a lot of advice people give is like, still have your nine to five, still have your quote unquote main job, and then have writing as your secondary job. I think it is possible to have writing as your main job and having another job as your secondary job, because that's how I do it. So I think that 
it does sound disheartening to say, don't quit your day job. And it might be because of how we're phrasing it to imply that published, that, that writing always has to be a side hustle because then it's telling people to, um, to put their dream to the side. But I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. It just means don't have writing be the only thing you're doing to bring money in. And so if you want to do like your main focus is your writing, but on the side you're doing some consultant freelancing stuff, which is what I do, or on the side you want to do some like remote work that's like, you know, an evening job or something like that. I think that that's actually very doable. It's just that you have to be aware of your own limits and your comfort level and you just have to be smart about it. I mean, I make whole spreadsheets. Maybe you don't want to do that. I know not everyone's a spreadsheet person. My heart just beat really fast when it's a <laughs> spreadsheet. I'm like, oh God, I'm sweating right now. I, I love spreadsheets, but like if people don't want to do that, I there's apps, there's free apps. I use mint.com, which is great in order to like budget. To, and the thing is, is it's not a constant thing I think you need to do is just to kind of give you a foundation of what is actually necessary in your life. And once you figure that out, I think it opens up so many doors of possibilities to live your life. Um, and, and I think that's pretty great. Oh, God, we are just so lucky that you were able to even share this on the podcast. So thank you for that. And that inspired me to hashtag adults. So thank you, Kat. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you very much. Um, okay, so I'm going to shoot over the next question for you is, what is the best advice you have ever received? And just imagine it like if you were a mentor. And you had a mentee that kept coming to you and you're guiding that person towards their journey. What would you tell that person as the one key advice and do it successfully in a way that they would be happy with and aligns with their values and their dreams? I actually have given this piece of advice to a mentee before. So this is cheating, but I find myself saying to like any writer, friend, or mentee, stop self-rejecting. There are enough barriers for us in this industry and in this profession that we do not need to be our own enemies. And I think a lot of times for most people entering this industry and for most people starting out, the reason why it like they might have lots of starts and stops is because they're constantly self-rejecting. And I mean this across the board. I mean this like you write down you're writing and you have writer's block because you think what you're writing is bad. That's self-rejecting. Stop caring about if the words are bad when they first come out. Of course, they're going to be bad. That's why we have revising and revision. Um, and st stop self-rejecting and being like, this agent's not going to like me because they're like a huge agent. So I'm not even going to query them. Stop doing that. Stop saying that like you don't deserve promo from your publisher. Stop saying that like readers won't like it. You shouldn't be on these top 10 lists. You shouldn't be... These are all things that we are telling ourselves and we need to stop doing this. We need to kind of be our own hype person. And I know it's really hard. And, and like, obviously, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this as a woman of color. Like we are often like taught to be humble and all of this stuff, but we have, we're not allowed to do that anymore in this profession. It's not allowed. I'm telling you guys now, you're not allowed to do this because we are expected to do our own promo and it's daunting and it's terrifying enough on its own without us telling ourselves that we're not good enough. And if you can't be a fan of yourself, then how can you expect other people to be a fan of you? So just 
go out there and hype yourself. Be like, yeah, I wrote an amazing book. You're going to be so entertained. You're going to read it in one sitting. It's awesome. Why don't you just give it a try? And then if you don't like it, then you have free kindling for your fireplace. So it's a win-win. Like, just do it. Yes. Scold us, Kat. I love it. (laughs) Yes. I'm all about it. Oh, gosh. That's so good. I'm going to then expand it a little further where you mentioned about, you know, everybody having to do their own promo. What have you found has been the most either challenging or the most helpful thing that you've come across when it comes to self-promo? I would say the most challenging is when it comes to any kind of thing that I want that involves somebody else giving me permission. So it's like, I really want to go to BookCon, but like, I don't really have control over that. I have to ask my publicist and then she has to ask, ask the event coordinator BookCon and then they have to look at their schedule. So it's the idea of like, what should you spend your energy on? And unfortunately, I don't necessarily think any author, you know, start just starting out. I don't think it's worthwhile. Like the cost effect is not worth it for those big things. But in terms of what I think has been the most effective and worthwhile of my energy is the one-on-one interactions with my readers on social media. Like we can't do it in person right now, but, you know, local events, like, just setting something up with your local indie. And like, you know, even if you only have a crowd of like five, 10 people, those are five, 10 people you can give personalized attention to. And I think social media wise, cause that's probably the easiest and the freest is that the, the moment that I realized that I should stop caring about my content and just like be my own goofy self and stop being self-conscious about it was the moment that like I started getting more followers and I started getting more interactions. And I was like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at Twitter and Instagram as my promo tools. I'm going to look at them as my places to like put funny memes and like posts like about BTS and K-pop or whatever I want to post about. And then if people are like, ooh, and you're an author, is this in your writing? And I could be like, well, yes, it is. Thank you for asking. And then it's just way more natural and way more organic. And it's more fun for me. Like social media, people get stressed about it. But like if you're just on it and you're just like being like, I just want to have fun. I want to be goofy. Like if, if, and if you want examples of this, go to go see Ryan LaSala's feed. He does the weirdest stuff, but it's so funny and it's totally him. Wait, so how do you, how do you spell that? Um, well, he's reality. R-Y-A-L-I-T-Y, I think, is his. And then Clarabel Ortega, Clarabel underscore Ortega. Oh yes, Clarabel. She came to our three-year anniversary. She's awesome. Yeah. And like, honestly, I mean, like full disclosure, I'm close friends with them, but I literally met them online And I became friends with them online because they're so cool and funny and so themselves. So, yeah. (laughs) I would love to know, what are some small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals, even as specific as step by step? If it's the whole thing of like, you are in the process of drafting something and you kind of have writer's block or you want to feel productive about it. I would say allow yourself to write words that you might not think are usable. So like I, here's a little sneak peek into my fast drafting. I do like what we call skeleton drafts, which is kind of just like a more intense outline. So you can literally, I I even put it in bullet points. Sometimes I say like chapter five, 
um, you know, first, first scene, she is getting ready for school. She notices in the mirror this. She says, oh, sorry, that's my niece. So cute. Oh, my god! I couldn't restart that sentence. I think that's such a cute cameo. <laughs> Lucy, I'll be out in a second. She'll be famous now. <laughs> she just woke up from her nap. Um, okay. Where was I? All right. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can just like bullet point it out and you're allowed to count that as word count. I give you permission right now. What I do is I go in waves. Like I write the skeleton draft and then I go in and I'm like, what do I want to flesh out here? What is catching my eye? Oh, I want to flesh out this moment where she's noticing something in the mirror. And so that's where I go in and do that. And that is not even done there because then I'll go in the next, you know, the next week or whatever and be like, oh, am I including sensory details, I'm including this, I'm including that. And so by doing it in these little steps and knowing in the back of your mind, you are going to come back to it and add to it. It kind of takes the pressure off, you know, because you're like, it's not done yet. It's not done yet. It's okay. It's not done yet. And that way you're like, when I know that I have all the intentions of coming back later to add more to it, then I'm a little bit more easy on myself to kind of write nonsense. It's almost like a psychological tricking yourself. So just write bullet points if that's what's easiest. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Now let's wrap up uh, because poor Lucy is waiting for you. Okay. Let's wrap up with the last question is what are some books or a book that has really inspired you and your writing, whether it's a craft book and or novels that just shook you to the core and you're like, holy shit, this is incredible storytelling. Could you share that with us, please, to check out? Craft-wise, I really love Wonder Book. I don't know if you've ever seen this book, but it's gorgeous. It's like it's like a coffee table size book and it's multiple authors have contributed to it. So it's like really kind of... It's almost like an anthology, like a craft book, um, which I really like. And it's got like beautiful pictures and, and beautiful illustrations. And it's really thick. And so what I like about it is that I can go to it and I can just flip to the section that I want to like kind of free my mind and give me inspiration. And because it's, it's so visual, it kind of like unlocks parts of my brain that I don't necessarily use all the time because it's there's the text, there's the visual stuff, there's the infographics. And it kind of allows me a little bit of more creative freedom after reading it, which I really enjoy about that. So I just think it's worthwhile. And it's really pretty. So like you can display it on your coffee table and it's a nice decoration. In terms of books that I think are just like really worthwhile reading, again, this goes along. There's I could recommend so many traditional like young adult fantasy or young adult contemporary, anything like that. But in trying to be like, oh, what's a way to get people thinking differently is that I really do buy into the whole idea of like read widely and read outside of what you write because First of all, sometimes, I don't know if you get this, but it's sometimes hard for me to read YA fantasy if I'm really deep into like drafting or revising because I'm, I don't want to like be distracted or like I'm overanalyzing it and I hate that. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to read romance or I'm just going to read something completely different. And so I realized that it's good because it kind of allows me to be entertained still, but also makes me think of storytelling differently which is kind of nice because I bring it back to my own storytelling. So I think that it, for people, if you've, if you've never read a book in 
um, verse, you have to, because it makes you see language differently. It makes you experience the way words can be powerful in a single sentence so differently. And for that, I mean, Jason Reynolds is the king. So Jason Reynolds, a long way down. I read that book in one sitting and then I immediately started rereading it because I was like, I know I missed stuff. And it, it just made me think of storytelling so differently. Anything by Elizabeth Acevedo. Um, but I guess Poet X is the first one that comes to mind, her, her debut. Um, the way they play with language, I cannot express enough how impressive it is. And like, I'm not saying try to emulate them. I'm just saying like appreciate language more. And then maybe you'll think of your own storytelling differently. Yes. And I want to throw one in there in case you haven't checked it out yet. It actually just came out. So Punching the Air by E.B. Oh. Zaboy and Yusuf Salam. You have to check that out as well. I have a feeling you might really, really love that. And now my last question for you is what TV show slash K-drama can you recommend <laughs> because of you? I started watching more K-drama during COVID-19 and it is mm-hmm. the best escapism that's given me moments of peace and not think about any of the pandemic-related things. So Moonlin and I fell in love with Crash Landing on You, which is so good. (laughs) And I loved how they built up the female character. Um, Mm -hmm. And we just finished It One Class. But yes, yes, but then I can't figure out what, what show next because I loved Crash Landing on You so much. I'm trying to find something that really is along the lines of that with very strong female empowerment where the women are leading and they're the ones taking control um, and also like a good, cute love story. So if you have any recommendations for us, I would love to openly listen and take your recommendation. Okay. So in terms of female empowerment, I would definitely suggest Coffee Prince. And I will give the caveat that it is a little bit different than normal um, K-drama. But uh, to be fair, um, Itaewon class, what you mentioned, that's a little bit different than normal K-dramas, which is great about it. It kind of really pushes the envelope in terms of diversity. Coffee Prince is a little bit more of like, um, almost like if there was like an indie film version of K-dramas, that's what that feels like. So it's really cute. It's it's um it does follow that trope that can sometimes border problematic of like a girl being mistaken for a guy, but it it, it turns the trope on its head. It really is. Um and 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 the female character is just she's kind of um she's not fully non-binary, but she kind of falls into a little bit of a gender neutral kind of identity, which I really enjoyed. And and honestly, like this that. K-drama was made, I don't, I think like maybe 10 years ago. So it was like surprising that they, they went all in on that. Um, cause you know, I love, I love Korean, I love Korean culture, but like, I can't deny the fact that it's a little bit behind when it comes to LGBT uh, representation. So like, I really love that one. Um, if you want a sweet romance, that's a little bit more straight up, like just a cute romance K-drama, then touch your heart is really sweet. Um, and I really love that one. Um, and then if you want one that's like intense, like storytelling, then I would check out W2 Worlds. It's so interesting. It has one of my favorite K-drama actors of all time, first of all. But the concept is that this girl's father is the author and illustrator of a viral webcomic. And 
he goes missing. Like, like she just can't find him. It's not like that big a deal at the very beginning. And so she goes to go find him at a studio and she gets sucked into the webcomic. And she's like, oh my God, I'm in this webcomic. And she um, has to kind of like, she has to figure it out. And she's like, okay, when does a comic end? It ends when this happens. So she tries to like force the comic to happen, um, to like become free. And it's really funny because it plays with so many manga and webcomic tropes. And there's a lot of like interesting, is what's happening real? Is it not? Like what's reality? What's not reality? So it's actually really interesting playing with storytelling and tropes. So I really loved that one. Thank you for those recommendations. And are there any other shows happening right now as well? Oh, happening right now. Um, uh, I'm not watching anything too new. I mean, I did watch Crash Landing on You, so I would have recommended that if you hadn't already. (laughs) So that's already covered. I would say if we're talking about something that definitely I really respected all parts of it and it inspired my storytelling was Oh My Ghostess, but that's a little bit older, but I'll recommend it all day, any day, just because I really liked it. And it's like, it has fantasy elements, like a girl can see ghosts and then she gets possessed. And But it's like not even scary in that sense. It's actually really interesting. So um, I recommend that one a lot, storytelling wise. We're going to have this all listed. Our amazing show notes manager, Rachel, she's going to make sure to have this all linked up so that we can do research fall in love with the characters and just have inspiration. I think especially during this time, it's like what better time to absorb all of this, you know? So thank you for all of these incredible recommendations and please let everybody know where they can find you online. I'm at Cat Show on Twitter, at Cat Show Writes on Instagram and CatShowWrites.com is my website and all of my social media is on that as well. Thank you so much, Kat. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is like a bucket list experience. So thank you <laughs> thank so much. Thank you so much, Kat. <laughs> and that wraps up our episode for today. Kat, thank you so much for showing up transparently honestly and so openly for this episode and for our community. I loved this conversation and I am so thrilled we got to share your story with the rest of our community. Congratulations on everything. Listeners, please be sure to say hi to Kat on Twitter at Kat Cho and on Instagram at Kat Cho Writes. To find all the resources and books mentioned throughout Kat's episode, along with quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Kat Cho. I am thrilled to announce that we are beginning the process of building out 88 Cups of Tea's volunteer positions and would love to hear from you if you are passionate about 88 Cups of Tea and want to be a part of building out our future. So if you'd love to be a part of our back-end operations or if you'd love to be involved as a moderator for our private Facebook group of over 1,500 storytellers and it continues to grow every single day, please head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash volunteer. I cannot wait to hear from you and a huge heartfelt thank you in advance for taking the time to fill out our applications. I am so proud of our community and the future that we're heading towards. 
I know there's a lot of you who have kids who are getting ready to get back to school and there's so many of you who are adapting to your new work schedules and just life overall. I hope you're all taking good care of yourselves, staying healthy and safe and hope you all continue to make space for your creativity, your art and your writing. Thanks for tuning in and I will catch you next Thursday.